This is not your usual law firm podcast. It's not about analyzing new law, old law, or in the works law. In this podcast, we aim to challenge the status quo, provoke thought, and uncover new ways of thinking. We're about talking to leaders of industry on how they've tackled problems, problems you may have in common, and sharing the solution. We want organizations to think differently, act with agility, and hold back preconceived ideas to entertain a new one. Welcome to Hold That Thought. Private data protection is a significant focus internationally. We've already seen significant privacy breaches around the world and here in New Zealand. How can business leaders prepare for the inevitable breach of their defences? Can bringing data privacy management to the board level reduce data breaches? In this episode, Denton's chair and partner Hayden dives into the murky world of private data protection and what boards can do to prepare for a breach in their defences. Kia ora and welcome to the latest episode of Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Hayden Wilson. I'm the chair and partner at Denton's. Today, we're here to talk about cybersecurity and data protection, and in particular, privacy and cyber breaches. How can leaders of businesses prepare for the inevitable, almost inevitable breach of their defences? I've got two fantastic guests with me today. First up is Alistair Miller, who's a principal consultant at Aura Information Security. Aura Information Security is Cordia's specialist cybersecurity division. Alistair's responsible for helping a wide range of organizations transform their approach to security. He's got more than two decades of experience in information security across both enterprise and government. Kia ora, Alistair. Welcome. Hi, Hayden. Thank you very much. And also joining me is Deputy Privacy Commissioner Liz McPherson. I'm very glad to see you again, Liz. As Deputy Privacy Commissioner, Liz leads the office's compliance and enforcement and investigation and dispute resolution teams, as well as helping the policy team with their work on biometrics. She's got an extensive public service career spanning more than 30 years, including policy, operations, regulatory, strategy and corporate governance roles. And I've had the pleasure of working with Liz in a number of those roles, and most recently working with her on what seems to be an ever-increasing number of cyber breaches with privacy implications. And that's why we're here. Kia ora, Liz. Kia ora. Lovely to be here. Well, looking forward to the conversation. Fantastic. I think everyone who pays attention to the news knows that there have been, you know, an increasingly large and public cybersecurity breaches, both here in New Zealand and particularly across in Australia. And when you look at things like Medibank, like Optus, Latitude Financial, the cyber breaches that affected the Ministry of Justice and the Ministry of Health last year, this is an issue that fundamentally must be on the risk radar of anyone who is a leader of an organisation. Why is it that we're seeing, do you think, at this increase in privacy and cyber breaches? Is it more breaches or are we discovering what has already been going on? What do you think? I think openness is actually helping. So with the privacy commissioner, you know, being there and there's a notifiable breach now, so you have to notify. More people have been open, more people have been honest, but the number of attacks is ramping up, unfortunately. Phishing is such an easy way to get in, and yet most of the attacks will come through phishing. If it's not mostly phishing, it's third parties. And both of these ones are easy ways to get in, low attack, you know, phishing, very easy, low cost. Third parties will offer you a massive amount of range because they've always got a lot of clients, so they allow you in. And then, you know, you're going to do your very best to earn a few hundred thousand plus dollars if someone pays a ransom. So the cost of entry for doing this is pretty small. The chance of getting a lot of money 
is pretty high. The chances of getting caught and getting prosecuted, very small. So it's just a growing way. And obviously, until you've basically made paying a ransom illegal, organizations are always going to have to make a business decision. And so with a business decision, they're going to weigh that up, go, can we do it? Do we have to do it? And, you know, money will keep going out towards the criminals. And unfortunately, money is the big decider here. Mm. Liz, what about you? What do you think is driving this? Well, there are the issues that Alistair's just mentioned. So there is no doubt in our experience that we have mandatory reporting, but the number of breaches is going up. And in fact, we've been tracking breaches for some time now, even when we were still had voluntary reporting. And the primary cause of breaches was human error. Just recently, we've crossed the boundaries such that cybersecurity and malicious actor breaches are now in the majority. Your question was about why we're seeing big companies embroiled in privacy breaches. And on the one hand, the malicious actors are getting smarter. And as Alistair says, they've got a lot of motivation to do this. But on the other hand, you know, I do think there is something about the attitude of directors and of agencies to cyber breaches. So the Institute of Directors, this is New Zealand Institute of Directors Sentiment Survey for 2022, I think was pretty revealing in that it found that a significant proportion of boards weren't sufficiently prepared for a digital future. And disturbingly, given our conversation, that a number of them were taking nothing to see here, it won't happen to us type approach. You know, only 37% of directors said that they felt that their boards had the right capability to lead them into a digital future. And from my perspective, it was disturbing to find out that only 54% discussed cyber risk, and that was down from 60% in 2021, and only 46% ever discussed privacy practices and risks on a regular basis. So, you know, it's what gets measured gets managed. And from that perspective, I think that sort of sentiment and attitude may well have a bearing on whether you've actually got the right preparation in place. Mm. And with directors always having too much on their plate, Mm -hmm. you know, there's Mm -hmm. a real challenge of just getting this up onto the radar. And the PPC has been doing some pretty serious nudging with Mm -hmm. that for, for boards with things like, as Alistair said, with, you know, mandatory reporting, with time bound reporting, with the use of privacy compliance notices, much as a tool for compliance, well, not just as a tool for compliance, but also as a tool that the people in-house can use to drive mm-hmm. a privacy conversation. I was on a panel last week with a team from the Reserve Bank, who, as is public, went through their own mm-hmm. privacy breach. They were the recipient of OPC's first ever compliance notice. And one of the interesting things mm-hmm. there was the team was saying that was really useful. That was really useful to us because the OPC engaged with us collaboratively on building that compliance notice, but that then gave us something that we could use to advocate internally for a real focus on privacy and security within the organisation. So with this rise, what are the things that each of you think should be on the minds of boards as they prepare for what is possibly inevitable? Liz, if you're sitting on a board, what are you asking your management team? What are the issues that you want to discuss? I like to think of this as being akin to the shift that we saw with health and safety, getting the right information in front of them and asking the right questions. So, you know, do we, very basic thing, and it never ceases to amaze me how many agencies don't understand this, is does the agency actually understand the data or the personal information it holds 
what they hold and how it flows. Do they understand how these systems interact with other systems? So it's having a good understanding of your information system and then where are your key risks? These sort of key risks to you as an organisation should be the sorts of things that boards are aware of. They're then asking questions of their managers about, you know, are these being managed? How do we know they're being managed? Do we have a cyber instance response plan? Do we practice it regularly? Right up to the board level, the board needs to be involved in that. So these are the sorts of things that I think are important. And if those conversations are being held at the board level, culture comes from the top, that will flow down through the organisation. And one of the most important things I find when I'm talking to boards about this is actually digging behind the what do you think you do. So digging behind what your policies say about Mm -hmm. where information flows and where it's held and looking at actually what the individuals in the organisation really do because that doesn't always line up with what you've got down on paper. No, no. We've had breached agencies who have the most beautiful policies and standards and privacy impact assessments. They just aren't implemented and not lived. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Alistair, what what would your advice be to to boards who are trying to get their heads around this challenge? The outside perspective is very useful because, as Liz said, and as you said, people will write beautiful policies. They may even do a risk assessment if they're feeling particularly brave, but it's from an internal perspective. And you are going to have a limited view because you only are your company. You can only see what you know, have experience of, and your controls that you will talk about, they'll always be working. They very rarely will you admit that your control is ineffective, and they'll be the only controls you're familiar with. So bringing in an external party to actually come in, do an assessment of your controls, do an assessment of your risks. And then that goes up to the board, not all the little detail stuff, the high level, the big stuff. Mm -hmm. And that gets looked at quarterly and you kind of work your way through it. You ask people, well, we've got a critical risk here. Are we, what are we doing about it? Here's a list of controls that are recommended. Are we doing anything? You know, if they reduce our risk and you've got a financial impact on this one by half a million dollars we can probably afford to spend a couple of hundred thousand to reduce that risk. So we've got an idea of budget as well, which always helps. And then after a year, we can bring someone in, they can reassess, have we done what we should have done? Has the goalpost moved? Because it always moves in cybersecurity. You're standing still, you're going backwards. So Mm. while you can do a lot in-house, every now and then you will need that assessment from someone who's impartial and has a view of the wider landscape because organisations are very good at looking after themselves, but it's very internal focused. I couldn't agree with Alistair more. I think having an independent view helps you with your blind spots, but it also means that directors can do what directors do well, where they can basically look at their risk and they can decide how they're going to prioritise. As that reputational risk, I think there's the thing that really triggers directors to move this up the priority list. When you think about organisations that are trusted by the public with information, Mm. I know this is a a belief that you have, Liz, the more you're Mm. trusted with people's personal information, your reputation really relies on your ability to manage and keep that information secure. But aside from reputational risk, what other things would you be saying to a board if you're trying to get them to pay attention to this? These days, personal information is what helps you innovate. This is about how you think about how you're going to respond to your customers, how you're going to meet their needs, how you're going to ensure that whatever you're offering is competitive in terms of the rest of the market. So that personal information that you're holding in trust 
is actually a real source of innovation for you. And there's a saying out there which says progress moves at the speed of trust. And if you don't have trust in your organisation from your customers, then your ability to actually use personal information to innovate, to benefit your customers, to design new products and services is going to be seriously diminished. There's also the operational risk. So you've got an incident, you are suddenly possibly not doing anything in a business term. So if you've been ransacked and they've got wide, the business is shut down until you've dealt with that incident because there's the forensics you have to do and nothing works. Mm-hmm. Even if you've managed to contain it, you've still suddenly throwing a whole lot of resource at dealing with the issue, managing the issue, doing communications. So it's a massive operational risk because you're basically not earning money. You're concentrating on either trying to recover or trying to manage the incident or both. Mm-hmm. So if it goes long enough and big enough, you are starting to lose millions of dollars on lost revenue, lost opportunity. And as Liz said, trust, because if an organization is dealing with something for weeks on end, it you kind of go, well, that was a poorly run organization because terrible things happened there and they weren't prepared and their comm strategy obviously wasn't great. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that make people go, that's bad if it's going on for a long time. So Mm. it's an operational risk as as well. So as as we can see, there are numerous different aspects to it that kind of say, oh dear. And there's a perfect example of that operational risk from Australia when toll freight got owned, I think now it's probably 18 months to Mm -hmm. two years ago. And, you know, that is massive nationwide freight company. And they were reduced to doing everything by paper for about four or five months. They got hit twice as well. Even though they may have learned some lessons, unfortunately, it happened to them again. Some organisations think it's a one-off and then afterwards they'll be marvellous. But unfortunately, it can happen multiple times. Yeah, and the cost to Optus, Medibank, Latitude themselves in terms of everything they're doing for customers who have had their driver's licenses being replaced by them, passports are being replaced by them. There's a whole variety of other things, as well as ultimately the need to put your systems right. Yeah, it's a huge cost. And as we're seeing, you can't just go, well, it won't happen to me. Um, Because, you know, even the most prepared organisations have that risk. Sometimes that risk sits between the keyboard and the chair. Sometimes the people that do are actually just really quite smart and persistent, and they'll spend a lot of time in your environment trying to find the ways in. Now, Alistair, you spend a lot of time trying to make sure you've ferreted them out once they're in. From your experience working with people when it does go wrong, what is the most difficult and complicated aspect of the response. You you get a call from your IT manager and you roll incident response. What's the thing that's most complicated for governors and leaders to deal with, Alistair? It's going to be the scope. So what has been impacted? And they will keep asking, especially, you know, at the board and executive level is what has been taken? How far has this got within our organisation? And you do not know until well down the track when you're kind of tidying everything up, you really start to understand the scope. But it's very hard for the executive and board to make decisions that they can feel very confident at without understanding that scope. So you have to have, as Liz said earlier, done the tabletop exercises, played it out as either we're just going to play it with we've got no idea the scope. So what are we going to do? Or we'll try and, you know, small scope, big scope. But it's very hard for anyone without knowing how bad it has been. So you've got to make your best guesses, your best educated stuff, plans that you've run through again and again. And it's that lack of confidence that can really stall people because they just don't feel confident. And that's hard. This is interesting, right? Because it feeds into the work that the OPC has done 
you know, previously on privacy breaches, forget about cyber. The rule is first stop it, then figure out the extent of it so that you can contain it. And one of the things that I think is new, particularly in this new ransomware environment, is you're right, Alistair, often you're, you're never sure of the extent until you're at the end of incident response, not when you're just launching it. So Liz, what do you see when people come to you, as I know they do, at saying, we've had a whoopsie here? Well, it depends the size of the whoopsie, but it's the not knowing that paralyzes people. And so our conversation with them often, particularly in the context of malicious actors, um, ransomware type attacks, is to talk them through how to think about how they communicate in a situation of uncertainty. That's the thing that they're most concerned about. So there's, yes, how far has this got? Have RL IT people looking after things? But then the next thing they turn to is, how should we be talking about this? Who should we be notifying? We don't even know how serious it is yet, but if it is a malicious actor, there's a good chance that, you know, not surprisingly, they're planning to do something that, a bit nefarious with it. Our advice to people is to plan for the worst and hope for the best. Going back to that trust issue, you don't want your customers to be finding out that you've had a breach for the first time from either the media or because something nasty happens to them. Or because their bank is ringing them. Yeah, exactly. So we counsel people through, and again, it comes back to that planning and preparedness and going through a variety of different scenarios. How are you going to talk to the media or to your customers about what's happened to you? And I actually think that Latitude's approach, which I think was driven to a certain extent about by the fact that they had to notify the stock exchange because they had ceased trading. But Latitude's approach was to go out there and say, we've had this breach. It will affect our customers. If you're one of our customers, it may well affect you. We don't know how bad it is yet, but it does mean that our systems are locked down. We will come back to you once we know more. But in the meantime, we encourage you to take care. That's sort of an approach which is putting your customers at the heart of the way you're responding and allowing them to take care themselves, take the action that they can take, is something that we tend to encourage agencies to think about doing. That is always tricky, and particularly now when we're seeing the rise of supply chain Mm -hmm. attacks, where your personal data might have gone to company A, who has Mm -hmm. stored it with a managed service provider, and then you've got multiple layers, because Mm -hmm. if I get an email from some random managed service provider saying that my information's been involved in a data leak or a hack, I'm as likely to think that that's a phishing exercise as I am a a, a report. Alistair, what do you see in terms of that kind of notification, identifying who's been affected and how in your side of the work? We always recommend that openness. So the minute you start not saying anything at all, or you say, oh, it's just what we think it is now, you then have to contradict yourself. And contradicting yourself is a terrible look because it kind of goes, well, what were you lying? Did you just not know? It yeah. just asks a lot of questions. That openness, and again, the excellentness is of the advice of going, use credit agency checking services, freeze your credit for a bit. All these things are so helpful for someone who's been breached. And again, uh, we've seen a few of them do that, and they point to the OPC's website and things like that, just pointing to where you can get help, saying, we know stuff's going on, we'll update you on their website, or maybe having media updates every now and then. As Liz said, putting the customer first, showing that we're managing their data, we're doing our best to control it. And 
you're looking responsive. You're looking proactive. You're not looking retroactive, which is always a bad look because it looks like you just don't know what's going on. You haven't prepared. You've got no plans. It just looks messy. Yes, I spend a lot of time working with clients to do press releases that say, this is what we know now, and yeah. this is what you can do immediately. And when we find out more, we'll be in communication with you. Yeah. And being really open about the fact that things are evolving, that things will change, and as things change, you'll let them know. And as Alistair says, and I mean, your, your point was a good one, Hayden, people worry that the message they're getting is from somebody who's fishing them. Tell people how you're going to communicate with them. You know, you'll only hear from us via this channel sort of thing. Come yeah. to our website. Those sorts of things are important. But I just wanted to go back to another point you made, Alistair, which is about the sort of networked effect that we're seeing increasingly as, particularly as agencies, not surprisingly, want to get away from the risks of having their own servers and, th- and want to move into something that can be managed on the cloud or by a, a specialist provider, those providers are being seen as a good target, as Alistair said. With one hitch, you can get to a whole range of agencies who are linked to that provider. My advice to boards who have arrangements with third-party providers is to remember that under the Privacy Act in New Zealand, it's the principal not the agent who is liable under the Privacy Act. If that agent is simply processing information for you in a way that you would do yourself if you had the capability or wish to do it, then they are that you are liable. And the Privacy Act essentially says that you're deemed to know everything that they know. What that says is think hard about how you procure. Think about your contracts. Think about what you put in your contracting arrangements around data breaches, around the requirement for the third-party provider to let you know as soon as they're aware there's something going on. One of the questions that I tell boards that is the most useful question that they can ask is, so explain to me how we'll know if provider X has an incident. What are the contractual hooks or the relationship that means that they will tell us? Because with so much of organisations' data being held by third parties, and understandably, you know, particularly if they're overseas, we're in a different litigation environment, they're nervous, mm-hmm. they're going through a crisis themselves, they want to get to understand the extent of their problem before they talk to you in, in order to comply with the Privacy Act. You know, you need to know that this is happening. Third-party risk management is a massive topic now. I imagine if the boards ask, they'll find their organisation is answering a lot of questions as much as it's asking. Because everyone now is worried about their suppliers and their clients. And so answering those questionnaires, basically, do you have MFA? What's your password? How are you backing up data? You both Mm -hmm. want to be asking and answering that, which is to some extent, unfortunately, driving people down the compliance route of ISO and SOC 2, just for the sake of ticking boxes. It makes their life easier there. But it is a step to actually understanding the risk all your third parties present. So where Liz mentioned earlier, data mapping to understand where your data is going understanding where it's sitting in those third parties and therefore which one of those top five organizations that you deal with are your critical risks who you really need to put under the microscope. Mm -hmm. You really need to understand what they're doing. If you can get specific contracts out of them, great. If they're bigger, it's really, really hard to do. But you can really poke them with a stick, really understand and then plan. If they have a real issue, how do I deal with them? It's an interesting topic when I bring up like the big cloud providers, you think they're invulnerable, but they're not. What happens if they have an issue? 
have you backed up your data there? Do you have any plans to deal with them? And the answer is usually no. And just a point of clarification for, for some of our listeners who, who may not be familiar with this, but when you say, Liz, when you refer to agencies, you're referring to agencies in the privacy accents, which is basically yeah, yeah. everybody, um, not, everybody, not government agencies or, or anything like that. I mean, agencies under the Privacy Act means everybody. It means government agencies, private sector businesses, NGOs, community trusts, you name it, and even be some individuals. So, it wouldn't be a podcast in 2023 if we didn't touch on generative artificial intelligence. And I think this is a really good place to touch on it because it, it offers real promise for businesses, but I think it brings into sharp relief some of the privacy issues and some of the security issues. What should boards be thinking about, Liz, when they're thinking about privacy in chat GPT or generative AI? What should be at the top of their minds? First, that it's, well, it's basically still untested, isn't it? And one of the things that I think should make boards boards for thought is the fact that the creators of this thing are saying, you know, we're not sure how safe it is. The thing about generative AI is that its whole modus operandi is to hoover up data and to use that to create a new intelligence. The risk that you have is that if you feed the personal data of your clients into a a generative AI tool, you can find that it may well be retained or disclosed by the provider of the AI tool, or it could be used to train the model, and that information can then pop up in a whole variety of other places. I guess the, the thing that we've said about generative AI is that it heightens the risks that we already have and essentially puts them on steroids. There are accuracy risks. Generative AI often produces some very confident errors of fact and logic, (laughs) Um, and it has a tendency to hallucinate on occasions. It can perpetuate bias. One of the things that we've been looking at recently is the way in which generative AI can combine real personal information about a person with fake personal information about a person. It's very difficult for somebody to know the difference, and there are class action suits currently in a number of places around the world where individuals have effectively been defamed, lost their careers and a variety of other things because of this sort of fake information. So our key point to boards would be, look, we have absolutely no doubt that AI will have some huge benefits. It'll provide ways of optimising business processes, improving efficiencies, a whole variety of other things. But at the moment, it is very risky. And that accuracy point is a, is a really good one to come back to because you know, people need to remember that accuracy of the personal information you hold is an obligation that, that, that organisations have, and that's really important. I mean, it does seem to me that the rise of generative AI has really fed into the problem that we had in the 2000s in privacy, which was organisations started collecting a bunch of data, and people, often in marketing departments or in sales, were, well, we've got this information, we should use it without thinking about why it was collected. And now we've just got a tool that's supercharged and that's something that people need to be really conscious of. Alistair, on the security side of generative AI, anytime you're plugging something into your system that's going to hoover up a large amount of data, what are some of the things that you think boards should be thoughtful about? Well, I think the first differentiation they should make is between a public AI and a private AI. And this is the problem here. They've conflated the two. So all these generative AIs, they're all public. So 
your data is basically going into the public domain as you pump it in. Now, it's starting a conversation, which is good. But if you do think, oh, AI would be very useful for doing this, you want to steer yourself down the private AI sphere mm -hmm. where you've got an AI and a model built around the data that you feed in. So the inaccuracies are often because there's bias based on the data that was used to build models. And if the models from overseas, they will have numerous biases that then don't necessarily apply to the people that you're working with. Mm -hmm. So a private AI that's actually built for you, but then it becomes your data security that would reflect how you usually protect data. So it becomes, I will treat it like a CRM. I'm going to protect my CRM with these series of controls. I will protect my private AI with a similar series of controls. Mm -hmm. And I will rigorously test it. And when I patch it, I will test it again because public AIs, they patch them. They suddenly give different answers to the same questions beforehand. So you treat it like a system as any other data system that you have. Mm -hmm. Same controls, same rigorous procedures around it. But then it is much more tailored to you and contained. Most organizations, I feel, will find very limited use for a public AI because it's all, it becomes almost a toy for people to play with, but they can get useful actual business innovation out of a private AI. There may be slightly, there'll be costs involved because it's a whole new system, but it's a much more responsible and actually useful tool when they take mm. themselves down that one. It's great advice on, on both sides. I want to shift gear just a little bit and look to some sort of slightly more macro and policy issues if we can. It's evident to me that there is no sign of any slowdown of cyber attacks, particularly ransom, ransomware attacks. Mm -hmm. And the Australian Home Affairs Minister, Claire Owen, was quoted reasonably recently the last couple of weeks talking about, you know, if, when you look at Medibank, when you look at Optus, when you look at Latitude and the kinds of information and the extent of information that they have, that perhaps it's time to stop looking at these as individual events for individual organizations to deal with it and to start thinking about some of these large scale privacy and cyber breaches as effectively national security incidents and have a national security response that isn't dependent on the organization that's breached. Do either of you think that there is a role for that here in New Zealand? I think the more support that can be given to organizations under attack, the better, because they will be, even if they've done their due diligence, done their planning, got, you know, retainers with incident response firms, got, you know, crisis management, all kinds of things. The expertise that a government central agency can offer to them, even if it's offering good advice a lot, you know, and early in the procedure and coaching them through it and then possibly offering seminars and things, the more the government can do to generally improve the whole atmosphere, because Unfortunately, the organizations attacked, some, most of them won't be the ones who are doing the very best. It will be sort of the, the lower fruit on the tree. So the more the government can help raise the general level, the harder it will be for attackers to attack. And when we go back to malicious parties, a lot of them are associated in some degree or another with countries who have dubious relationships with the Five Eyes countries. They either time turn a blind eye to those attackers or they are affiliated in various strange and peculiar ways. So they see attacks on countries, especially the Five Eyes, as something that is great because it helps destabilize them as much as other things they do to destabilize these countries. So the government supporting that would be excellent and would generally help the whole cybersecurity culture of the country. Liz, what do you think? If we have cybersecurity hits on some of our big infrastructure companies, for example, you know, say there's a pit that takes out all our telcos or takes out the banks or the energy infrastructure companies and those sorts of things, it is a significant risk for us as a nation. But equally, there are the large companies that you would hope actually have the resources to put into keeping themselves safe, but 
we are a nation of small businesses. And as we've just heard, some of those small businesses are actually starting to offer third-party arrangements, which they can now do because the cloud doesn't require them to have as much in the way of infrastructure themselves. So we actually have to think about not just the big businesses, the you know sort of nationally significant organisations, we also need to be thinking about some others. So from that perspective, I agree with Alistair, I think when we talk to people who are going through a breach, you know, after the first conversation, which is usually breathe, just breathe, it's then that they're looking for how they get that tech support, how they really understand what's happened to them and what they, how they put that right. And one of the perennial questions in Australia has gone as far as to outlaw, to talk about outlawing payment of ransoms. You know, this is an ongoing conversation. And, you know, I get it at a macro level. If you, as a country, can say we don't negotiate with terrorists, then hopefully the terrorists don't look at you. But I'm also always struck by the fact that if it was my information that had been taken, I'd want the organisation to be doing everything possible to get it back, you know, potentially up to and including buying it back. And there's a privacy tension there between the micro and the macro. And I wonder, I don't know whether it's something that either of you have thought a lot about or or feel you can talk about, but I'd be really interested in your views. I think it's very hard to have a clear line because for some businesses, decrypting their data to allow them to continue in business is that life or death. Basically, if we don't do this, we're out of business because it will take us two weeks to come back. And by that time, we won't be paying our staff. All our clients will have left to do other things. So it's existential. They may break the law if it's just a fine, you know, I'll pay a $100,000 fine to carry on doing business, even, you know, if I get a rap across the knuckles. So it's a good idea to discourage people strongly. But I feel a clear law that outlaws it will just end up with putting some people who were under a very high pressure at the time under even more pressure. And the cyber criminals will unfortunately just work on a way to get around that. So they're not stupid. If you get it outlawed, they will come up with some way of, oh, well, then you can do business with a third party of a third party who will then channel them on or you make through the back channels that exist. So they are, after all, criminals. They are, after all, criminals. Yeah. They can't be trusted. And you don't really want to punish the people who are already suffering. There are questions that I can guarantee you a business somewhere in New Zealand, probably more than one, is presently facing. The boards do need to discuss this in a stress-free environment ahead of time, that you do not want to be discussing it for the first time when you're actually an incident. You want to have had a series of conversations beforehand. So you've got a consensus and you've really dug into the issues. And this is where planning and war games come in, right? Yep. Absolutely. You need to wargame this variety of different scenarios and you need to do it, as Alistair says, before it happens to you. Absolutely. And I know, Alistair, you get involved with a number of these exercises, as do I. And it is always interesting to see people reacting in an environment that is stressful, but where the stakes aren't quite so high. I'm interested, Liz, you know, is there anything that the OPC can do to help people when they're doing those planning exercises those war games are there resources that they can reach out to you to help boards inform that one of the things we are looking at at the moment in our breach area is we've got good resources on our website but can we go that step further can we actually have a a template which says you know here's some of the things that you should be working your way through we have that to a certain extent but whether there's some additional guidance that we can provide But I know that there's people like Alistair and others out there in the private sector who are able to do this too. The thing that strikes me, though, when we're doing it is often the relationship between your office and us is a key part of the response. And 
so we can't bring your poor team who are already doing enough work uh, sort of into a war game exercise. But I wonder if there's some space for some resources there where we yeah. can say, you've asked the OPCs and this is what they've said to sort mm-hmm. of build that into some of those yeah. processes. We are definitely looking at that at the moment. The other thing we're trying to do is just be a lot clearer about our expectations. So when we went out and said, look, as soon as reasonably practical, you know, after you become aware of an incident, means 72 hours, was because we kept getting questions from people saying, how long is this? And in particular, from privacy officers and chief information officers going, we can't get our guys to get active and let you know what's going on, so please give us a rule of thumb, Mm, Um, you know? And that has been really, really useful. The thing for people to remember, though, is you don't expect in 72 hours for them to deliver a nice, neatly bound book that explains everything that's going on. Basically, it is just picking up the phone and saying, this has happened, this is what we're doing so far, putting that stake in the ground, and then getting on with the job, right? That's great. I'm conscious of everyone's time. I want to leave with a final question to each of you, which is, what is your most significant concern right now in the cybersecurity and privacy space? What is it the thing that's keeping you up at night? Alistair? I think it's those third parties. Everyone is outsourcing now because it saves you money. It, it, you know, you can concentrate on what you're really good at, let people concentrate on what they're really good at. And so that means people have outsourced their knowledge of what they've outsourced to, how they're looking after their data is often so poor that it's sometimes terrifying when you find someone basically goes, you ask them, who, who does that? It's those people, those people, those people. They know and do so little now themselves that they are so dependent on these third parties that I just fear a sort of a domino effect of systemic risk just tippling over and causing utter chaos. Definitely. I'm with Alistair on third party providers, but I'd add one more thing, which is sort of connected. It's data retention. It's basically agencies who have hordes of data that they've forgotten about personal data that's sitting there and it just becomes a target to malicious actors and a huge risk for them and for the customers whose data they're looking after. I couldn't agree with the two of you more and and particularly Liz on that on that last point. I mean organizations do need to start thinking about data as being a toxic asset. Why are we keeping this? Do we really need to keep it? Not just to comply with their obligations under the Act to Mm. only keep things for as long as reasonably necessary but also to minimise their risk. It's such a good point to end on. So thank you very much. And thank you both for what's been a really interesting and stimulating discussion here. As a person who works in this space and works with boards, I know that they will have got an enormous amount out of this hour or so. So thank you very much for your time.